0: I want to upfront apologize to uh, everybody who's been in the church for many years and still believes the point of Christianity is getting to heaven when you die. At no point in the Bible does it say the point of Christianity is getting to heaven when you die. That is not the end of the story, but for some reason, it sort of becomes part of our culture. And we end up thinking that's the point of the story. What is the point of the story? It's this incredible truth that heaven is coming to earth. There's the first couple of bits, the first couple of chapters of the Bible have been definitive for Christianity through many, many years. I think our problem is we don't read the last couple of chapters of the Bible enough. We we start reading Revelation and the first couple of chapters kind of make sense and we get to chapter 3 and 4 and think, you ah, go, okay, pull out here and, uh, and leave it there. I, I actually think it's essential for most Christians to read the last two chapters of Revelation at least as often as you read Genesis 1 and 2. Because Genesis 1 and 2 is the start of the story. Revelation 21, 22 is the end of the story. And too many of us get stuck somewhere in the middle. The incredible truth of our faith is not that you go to heaven when you die. It's that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, a new physical reality. I encourage you to, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the back of the Bible, because Jesus is going to talk with us about, you know, what are the signs of, of this coming. And let's just read the first few verses of Revelation 21. That's why I hope you can glimpse, this is the Christian hope. This is, this, is, this is incredible, but somehow we miss it and we think it's about getting to heaven. This is, this is what the end of the story is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So many people have pointed out, at the start of the story, we have a garden. At the end of the story, we have a city. And all that a city means, culture and people and creativity and all kinds of stuff. There is, It's very specific. We have a city coming down from heaven and and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Remember the incredible power of the Temple was it, it was the dwelling place. It was the place where God's name dwelt. It was the intersection between heaven and earth. And then Jesus comes and claims to replace the functions of the temple. And then he says to the church, guess what? You're being built into the new temple, the new place where heaven and earth intersect. That is why Paul says, In 2 Corinthians 5.17, another verse that we sweep over easily, he says, if anyone is in Christ, that new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Really important to understand that this is the end of the story, but it started through jesus death and resurrection that means the resurrected life of jesus is now in us and we can be part of that new creation story and what that means is what you do with your life has eternal consequences jesus isn't saying uh just hang around this world's pretty stuffed up Uh, if you just hang I'll, i'll come back sort it all out you don't have to worry about it no As we're going to see in his words, he calls us out to live the truth of the new creation, the truth we see happen here in Revelation, and and it says... write down for these words are trustworthy and true he said to me it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I'll give water without cost and the spring of water of my life of, of life those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children We're not going to some ethereal kind of clouds in the sky with harps and that is not the story. The story is heaven comes to earth and the longing in your heart that says this isn't right will finally find its home. As you go, yes, this is what it's meant to be. It will be a physical reality. Not an ethereal, airy-fairy kind of harps and clouds kind of thing. It's going to be fantastic. There's going to be a city at the centre of everything. And Jesus is looking forward to hanging out with you. Can you believe that? I actually think we've got to let our, we've got to engage deeply with this new creation story and let our imaginations capture a little bit of the heart of what is being expressed here, because as we come to hear about Jesus coming back, this is what it means. So what I want you to do now is just take a minute to imagine this new creation life, this new physical reality, this new heavens and new earth. All the indications are there will be a Tasmania. There is going to be some connection we don't understand how it all works there's going to be some connection between the old story that's passed away and the new creation so what does all that mean well it means is this reality to look forward i'm going to throw up this very simple question what we want to do is let our imaginations loose a bit on the basis of revelation and this new creation future we're looking forward to and i want to ask you this question what are you looking forward to in the new heaven and new earth reality what are you looking forward to we've had 45 responses here you can see you start to see the answers coming up now isn't that beautiful this is the future we're looking forward to this is the christian hope it's important for us to live out of this hope that is at the heart of the christian message See, the disciples thought Jesus was coming to bring, bring a political kingdom, and that's when, why they asked in the first few verses, so when's this gonna happen? When are you gonna overthrow the temple? And, and when do we get to be in charge? And Jesus has this future in view, not a overthrow of the temple, political kingdom kind of thing in view. The uh, overthrow of the temple wasn't what they thought it was. It was the symbol of that, that the old way of relating to God is now over. Really important to understand this. I, I actually, I grew up as a, in a brethren church. Anyone else grew up in a brethren church? A few of us. Uh, I, I, I hope you don't mind me saying this for those of us who grew up in the brethren church. Uh, but I think there was, there was a bit of a, a virus that was produced from the v- the Brethren Church and came into the church more broadly, uh, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby uh, got very focused on what the end times would look like uh, and his way of thinking introduced a whole new way of thinking that was fairly novel, but now most Christians in the Western world don't even realise they've been affected by his way of thinking. And so one of the things that sort of bubbles up is that we somehow, we don't talk about it, but we end up thinking that Jesus coming back is going to be bad news somehow, which is wrong. This is the future we're looking forward to. And for those who who get into a lot of talk about the end times and like reading books, nothing wrong with those books. They're good science fiction, but understand that's what they are. They are not the path of the future. Do you know how we know that? because of what Jesus now says. So if you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles. Important to, for us to do deep Bible study and I really wanna encourage you. I'm gonna say some things this, after, this morning uh, that may go against how you would normally read this Bible and I, or these passages from the Bible and I really encourage you to have your Bible handy and do the work. Remember we started last week talking about exegesis and understanding things in their literary context their historical context and understanding what the words mean. So Jesus has just spent the previous 32 verses explaining the, the, the ramifications of the temple being destroyed and he's used this really symbolic language uh, that is dense and takes a fair bit of work. He now explains to the disciples when he's coming back in one unmissable sentence. This is is not ambiguous. He's very clear. And this is why anybody who tells you they know how the end times are going to work is full of it. Verse 36, but about that day or hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So, what's his answer to the question? So, when when are you coming back? When are you coming as king? I don't know. That's his answer. That tells us a few things. One is it gives us an insight into the limitations of Jesus' humanity. Jesus voluntarily renounced his Lord, his, his characters of the character character traits of being God he voluntarily voluntarily released being omniscient knowing everything he voluntarily released being omnipotent and came fully as a human being it's important you understand that one of the core understandings of the of the Christian church is that Jesus was fully human He didn't get any shortcuts if you want to understand more of the theology behind that i've got some references in the notes where the bible unpacks that more specifically so he is making it clear i'm not omniscient i don't know when this is going to happen god the father knows which for many of us we go what jesus didn't know it's why it's important to read this and, and understand the context of the Bible and see, and it helps us re-understand, reinterpret our story in the light of the big story of the Bible. Despite the fact Jesus being unambiguously clear, Christians over since about the year 400 have made predictions about when Jesus was coming back. Uh, the first prediction was the year 500. Uh, and I have a link in the sermon notes to the Wikipedia page that lists all the different predictions from 500 through to this seal three seal to come. Apparently in 2010 a survey was done and 40% of Americans believe Jesus is coming back before 2050. So... At one level, that's, as we're going to find out, that's fantastic. Jesus is making it clear, be ready. But what he is absolutely saying is anybody who thinks they know exactly how this is going to work is full of it. That's exactly what he's saying. Let's go on, let's, let's see more of what he's saying. He's saying, so... as it was in the days of noah and i really encourage you please be reading along in the bible so you can see so it will be at the at the coming of the son of man for in the days before the flood people were eating and drinking marrying and being given in marriage up to that the day noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away That's how it's gonna be at the coming of the Son of Man. What is Jesus trying to tell us here? The day he actually turns up and the new heavens and the new earth break into time and space is gonna feel incredibly normal. There's gonna be a whole lot of people, eating, drinking, getting married. There's not gonna be this whole big beacon going, okay, this is it, this is the day, let's wait. It's, it's not going to be like that. It's just going to be a normal day, is what he's saying. And remember, he then says, on that day, some people are going to be swept away, like those in the flood. One of the things that is, he is clear about here, it's not a superficial thing and is important to to understand, is that his coming back is going to be a dividing line. There will be a dividing line on that day between those who get swept away and those who won't. And in fact, what is going to now happen for the rest of this chapter, and then we're going to have next week Anne, and then Dan, and then John are all going to be unpacking what uh, Jesus says in chapter 25, the whole rest of what he's saying in the next bit of this chapter and the next chapter are all unpacking the implications of what he's saying here. He's not introducing any new truth, he's helping us to understand okay, what does this actually mean? Now some people will want to tell you that the next couple of verses are a reference to the rapture. Anyone understand what a rapture is about? Um, The idea that Christians are sort of going to get whipped whipped away. Um, Again, one of the dangers with that way of interpreting this verse is it takes this verse out of context. If you look at the preceding verse, uh, and it's interesting how it works, isn't it? Because we we've, the, the whole left behind book series, and stuff. I think those, that book series has gone on to shape our thinking more about this than the, the Bible does. What does the preceding verse say about who gets taken away when he's talking about Noah? It's the people who aren't on the ark. So I'll, I'll be honest with you, and it's why I encourage you to do your own study, Bible scholars all agree that these verses can be read in one of two ways. Either it's the Christians that get zapped away or the, uh, it's the Christians who get left behind. But the context here indicates that it's probably the Christians who hang around. It's, it probably means that you want to get left behind is what these verses probably mean. When he says two will be in the field, one will be taken, which is... Almost the exact same language he's using in the preceding verse to talk about Noah. And what the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill. one will be taken and the other left. What is he saying? This is what he's going to try and get out through our heads over the next three or four weeks. He wants us to live each day from the perspective that this could be it this could be the last day and there aren't gonna be people, special people with special insight about this. There are lots of people who have made lots of money indicating they have special insight about this stuff. Jesus is making it clear that nobody has special insight. What does he say? He says, therefore keep watch Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Again, he's saying from another perspective, everyone's going to be going about life as normal and then all of a sudden, I'm gonna appear. If you knew when I was gonna appear, you could put on your Sunday best, make sure that you'd be acting, you know, having sworn that day and done, been a good little boy or girl, and you'd be ready for me. No, nah, it's not gonna work like that, he says. And then he gives this really beautiful picture of what it means to be faithful. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. Some people have read this and say, well, this is only talking about leaders in the church. Very few Bible scholars believe this is what, that it's only about the leaders in the church. Jesus is wanting to make this clear that You are invited to be a faithful servant and what is the mark of a faithful servant living from the perspective that Jesus is going to come back? What is the mark of a faithful servant? Well, they're not focused on themselves. Again, I want to apologise if you've been in the church where we have used fear or guilt or any kind of emotional manipulation about your future to encourage you to become a Christian. Jesus is saying you become you being a follower of mine is not about your future (laughs) it's not about a lifeboat to get you into heaven when you die That if you live from the incredible truth that I'm coming back, you will be caring for other people. What is the job of the servant? What is he doing? He's looking after other people in order to make sure they get their food, that they get their needs met at the proper time. One of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the church is church. Only when it's there for others. If you're coming to church to get your needs met, you're not coming to church. Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, the the church must participate in the worldly tasks of life in the community. I love Uh, that Josh is trying to work out what all that means in politics. By the way, we are not a Liberal Party church, in case anybody's asking. Uh, We will equally invite, uh, as the local elections come up, we'll equally invite uh, Labor Party people to come and we'll pray for them. Um, We're not a Liberal Party church. But what Bonhoeffer is saying is we need not to be some Christian club off in a ghetto somewhere. We need to be involved in the community. That's what Jesus is saying here. His faithful servants are caring for others. He says, I must, this is Bonhoeffer speaking, not dominating but helping and serving. It must tell people, this is the church, in every calling what life with Christ is, what it means to be there for others. You need to understand you are called and the central part of your calling isn't self-validation, it is service. It is being there for others. Bonhoeffer goes on, in particular our church will have to confront the vices of hubris, which is enjoying the idea that you're better than you actually are and telling everybody about it. The worship of power and and. And I think there's an argument to be made that at the moment, as we get moved more and more to the sidelines, the church is actually wrongly ending up fighting for power. At no point should the church be fighting for power. We follow a king who says, this is what love looks like as he hung up on a cross. Envy. And illusionism. Illusionism is, uh, was a trendy philosophical word at the time when Bonhoeffer was writing, which basically means the idea that oh, I, don't, I don't have a choice about what I do in my life, free will is just an illusion. Bonhoeffer saying this is all the stuff that gets in the road of the church being there for others. And he says they're the roots of evil. It'll have to And this is what he's saying, we'll have to speak of moderation, authenticity, trust, faithfulness, steadfastness, patience, discipline, humility, modesty, and contentment. It'll have to see that it doesn't underestimate the significance of human example, which is what Jesus is saying which has its origin in the humanity of Jesus and is so important in Paul's writings. The church's word gains weight and power, not through concepts, not through neat and tidy little things on Instagram or sound bites on TikTok, but through the example of a life lived under the Lordship of Jesus. Our words gain weight, not because we're clever, but because we live them. Is what Bonhoeffer is saying. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And that's what he's going to unpack more when John comes and unpacks the parable of the sheep and the goats in a, in a few weeks' time. When you don't think you're accountable, you can misuse power. You can abuse people and you can focus on satisfying your physical cravings when you don't believe you're accountable. And we've seen, sadly, just too many political and and tragically church leaders not understand that they're accountable, don't we? One of the central messages of what Jesus is wanting us to hear is, you're accountable. You are going to be called to give account. And it's uncomfortable but jesus talks about judgment he talks about judgment six times in the book of matthew that there is going to be a dividing line there is going to be a moment where the truth that your actions today have eternal consequences comes home to roost and there will be an ultimate question Of whether in your life was Jesus Lord or were you? In verse 51, it's not a comfortable verse, he says, he'll cut him to pieces. This is a metaphor. Uh, We know that because this person has been cut to pieces, is still alive in the very next sentence, in the very next phrase where he says, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Remember, who were the hypocrites? Well, Jesus has just spent a whole chapter chastising, it's the main word he used for the Pharisees, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The, the picture there, it's, a, it's a, a picture that only comes through in Matthew and once in Luke, and it's this picture of deep grief. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody just so lost in grief that there's, they're, they're almost yelling. It's a, that's the a picture, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is saying, there is a dividing line. And again, I I actually think we've spoken wrongly about sin and we've tried to leverage it to produce guilt and fear. But we need not to back off the truth that there is a dividing line and ultimately what you want will determine your future. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, according to C.S. Lewis, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that has seriously and constantly desired joy will ever miss it those who seek find and those for those who knock it is opened That's what C.S. Lewis says now Jesus here is very clearly talking about this moment where heaven comes to earth this second coming moment where everything changes but everything else he's saying also applies to personally to you Life has a 100% mortality rate. You are not going to be here, chances are good, you're not going to be here in 100 years' time. And so, let's not waste our time. Let's not stuff around. Jesus is saying, you can live from the perspective of meeting your own needs if you like, like that servant who just got full of himself and thought, I, I'm never coming back. By the way, it's interesting, Jesus in that had to prepare when he says, because the, the, the picture for the servant is, my master is taking a long time. The evidence is the New Testament church thought Jesus was coming back any week uh, and he had to prepare his disciples for the idea he's going to come back at least 2,000 years later than I think he's going to come back. But the fact that Jesus has taken a long time isn't an excuse to get full of yourself. We are invited to the most precious, most remarkable adventure that has ever existed, the adventure of following Jesus. And you need to know there is a specific role he has for you and what it will mean is being there for others. If your brand of Christianity is meeting your needs, it's not Christianity. It's something else. Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, come on. I love the picture in Hebrews where it says, let's run the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up. Sorry I've gone a, a little longer today. But I think you'll agree. I, it's just so important for us to to allow ourselves to engage with the truth of the Bible. This changes everything. And I look, I am seriously sorry if you've been part of churches even times in our church where we haven't been deeply engaging with the bible where we end up having our theology shaped more by novels than by the truth of who jesus is and the adventure he calls us to and this truth is much more exciting than any other novel you can imagine we've got an incredible future ahead of us But what you do with your day today and who is Lord of your life today, let me tell you, it matters. And what Jesus wants you to hear is it has eternal consequences. Let's pray. Jesus, please, save us from self-absorption. Help us be open to the, the deep truth of the life that comes through you. And help us live it, not just talk about it. Help us, save us from preoccupation with guesses about when you're going to come back and help us just love the people you've got in front of us. Help us be the faithful servants, not the servants who are full of themselves. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you like to stand as we